Our next chapter leads us to one of the most prominent figures in the Hebrew Scriptures, Abram, later known as Abraham. In this episode, Rabbi Ari and Pastor Danielle set some groundwork explaining the meaning of the genealogy and discussing a variety of questions that emerge from this family's departure from their homeland on their way to Canaan. Descendants, dung balls, and discerning the voice of God. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. Well, welcome to A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. I'm Pastor Danielle. And I'm Rabbi Ari. And today we're going to be tackling a bit of our transition from the Tower of Babel into the life of Abraham. Yes, and uh, and this is another part that people don't pay attention to. There's a very interesting part at the very, very end that even though I was in rabbinical school and taught this time 40 <laughs> times over, I almost never paid attention to it. But we'll get there when we get there. It's the very end of the chapter. So we're starting on chapter 11, verse 10, and we'll do the rest of the chapter. Uh, I want to say a little bit about the way this appears in a Torah scroll. So there are traditions about how you write a Torah, and they've stabilized over the centuries. And the modern traditional way, it's been for quite a while now, starts the story of the Tower of Babel at the top of a column. So there are columns, and they have spaces where, like paragraph spaces. And the Tower of Babel story is only nine verses, and it's a block. There's nothing in there. There aren't ends of sentence. You can't tell. One word blends into another. But after that is the genealogy of Shem, Noah's son, which leads up to the birth of Avram. And from that, it looks like steps going down because at the end of every generation, they leave a big space open. And the way that the spaces go down, they look like a, stair- a spiral staircase because they start on the right and go down three, and then they go on the, down, down the other way, right. and then down the other way. And it just... I think that they decided to do that on purpose, and for two reasons. First of all, to show you it is a descent. So we say, I'm descended from hmm. this ancestor. ancestor. But the other thing is it's a descent in the ages, because the ages of the people decrease rapidly from the multi-hundreds down to the couple hundreds, and what Abraham will be, 175. So there is kind of a statement now at this point, with the world having been created, it's going to stabilized itself at what was said at the beginning of the Noah story around 120-year maximum in the Sentinel Ages. And we'll uh, put a screenshot of that up onto the rabbiandpastor.net website so that people can take a look at it and, and click to that image if they want to see how it's written. Even if you don't read Hebrew or even aren't able to understand any of the letters, you can still see how it's written with those blocks of white in between the type. Yes, we have English letters on there on the, on the picture so you can see what's going on. Very nice. Now, there, there are two significant descendants of, <laughs> of uh, Shem. And the first one is uh, Shem himself. Shem is the ancestor of the Shemites, that is, Semites. So all the people descended from Shem are Shemites, Semites. And that includes Arabs, and Jews and Semitic languages are Hebrew and Arabic. Um, and the word Shem also means name. Name or fame or renown. Yeah, all those different things. Right. And so uh, from Noah's three sons were fame, heat, and beauty. Shem, Ham, and Nephet. So um, I, I don't have three kids named fame, heat, and beauty. but <laughs> Or name, heat, and beauty. Yeah. Or name, no, not at all, no. Uh, Kevin has an interesting theory that part of what 
motivates um, anti-Semitism in the world is a desire for human humanity's desire to wipe the face of God off the earth, right? That the name of God off of the earth. And so when we um, are against the name, we are also against the people who are trying to express the fame and the name in the world and that ethic. And um, and I can see that sometimes with humanity railing, um, desiring to do the its very own thing that makes um, itself happy rather than interested in what makes God pleased. Absolutely. Shem's grandson was Ever. And you'll see it as E-B-E-R, Eber, um, but in Hebrew it's Ever. And Ever becomes the ancestor of the Ivri. Ivri is the Hebrew word for Hebrew. <laughs> and so Semites are descendants of Shem, and Hebrews are descendants of Ever, as it were, and the language is too. So it turns out that if you add up the genealogies, the ages these people lived, people don't really pay attention. So he lived so long, he lived so long, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, Shem and Ever were alive through into the life of Jacob. And by... Uh, tradition, they had an academy where they taught Torah. So God taught Torah to Adam, and then Adam taught it to Noah, and Noah taught it to Shem, and Shem to Ever, and Shem and Ever taught it to Avram, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a tradition. That's a tradition, yes. You will not find that in any chapter of Genesis. <laughs> right. And in terms of our chronolo chronological narrative, Israel is not given the Torah until Mount Sinai. So they have some sort of special knowledge in that, in light of that tradition, they would be already aware of teaching Torah, even though it's not written. Well, yeah. And, and, and the thing that's really interesting, the, the little proof text that the, the Torah was given in some form before Mount Sinai is that when Noah got on a boat, two kinds of every animal came to him, but seven of every pure animal. And the concept of a pure animal that can be eaten is not revealed until Leviticus chapter 11, so in the Torah. So how did that actually end up in the text? Did Noah know that there was a difference between one and the other kind of an animal, and did he get that from God as a part of a Torah? So there is this sense that that's the way it was. Um, it's not provable. <laughs> but but, you but know, an interesting tradition nonetheless. Yeah. There's another guy, um, uh, two generations after ever, uh, whose name is Peleg. And Peleg, I, every time I see Peleg, I think of his name as Pegleg, but it's not true. <laughs> uh, but Peleg means split and or half. And so... Uh, and they say later on uh, in his uh, in, in chapter ten or earlier in chapter ten twenty five when his birth is first mentioned that he was named Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. Hmm. It was Niflaga. It was Pelegd, and so the rabbis assumed that Peleg's life was at the same time as the Tower of Babel, and that was the division of the world into languages. So. There are these other interesting names here, and uh, my favorite one is the one who, uh, uh, after, is called Sarug, and Sarug means knitted. 
because a kippah serugah is a knitted kippah. And the way you can tell an Orthodox Orthodox Jew from a modern Orthodox Jew is that an Orthodox Orthodox Jew wears a black kippah skull cap. And a modern Orthodox Jew might wear a black skull cap, but they might wear a red one, and they're knitted out of uh, nice little yarns and things. And so, it, and, and they go with your apparel, and I have a couple hundred so they can wear them with basically anything that I have. <laughs> if you wear them a lot, you know, then <laughs> There you was wanna... a really popular Israeli television show this is called Sugim. Yeah, people who, modern Orthodox who were keep us Right, Shrugim. very good, very yep. good show yep. in Hebrew. But with subtitles for those interested. Yes, well, the Hebrew goes fast, so, <laughs> so sometimes it's helpful. Uh, as a matter of fact, I watch English shows with the subtitles on. <laughs> anyway, and, and, and oh, and the Scottish got really angry at the British because they were showing Scottish television shows in England and they were showing them with, with subtitles. Because the <laughs> <laughs> they do have, some Scots do have a very thick accent. <laughs> and, and anyway, I say that because my wife is part Scottish. I can like that. Um, so we get down to Terach, and what's interesting is Terach, who's Avram's father, uh, uh, Terach, uh, his father was Nahor, and he had a son named Nahor. So, uh, but his father Nahor was still alive when his son Nahor was born. So he didn't have the tradition that modern Ashkenazic German-oriented Jews um, have, which is not to name a child after a living relative. In case the angel of death could come knocking for somebody named Chaim. And get the wrong Chaim. Case of mistaken identity. Yeah, I don't think the angels are that stupid. But but so the <laughs> Sephardic Jews don't have that problem. If the father's name is Jonathan and again names his son David, David will name his son Jonathan and on and on and on and on. But <laughs> but uh, Ashkenazi Jews have this tradition. So if you say that you're naming your kid after a living relative, people go, tui, tui, tui. God, God forbid that the angel of death will come by. Kena hora. Not here the evil eye. Um, interesting thing about the Terach, is this is the craziest verse. 31, verse 31 in the chapter. And Terach took Avram his son, and Lot his grandson, the son of Haran, Haran who had died, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Avram's wife. And they all went from Ur-Kastim, or the Chaldees sometimes translated, to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, it's just different. One's a ch, one's a ha. Uh, they they stopped hmm. and lived there. They settled there, and that's the verse that nobody really pays attention to. Hmm. Who was Terach that he was going to Canaan, and how does that figure right. into Avram's call to leave his father's house and go on to Canaan? Right. Maybe he wouldn't have had to leave his father's house if they had all just gone together. Then they would have started what Avram was going to be commanded to do, right? And my question to our listeners and to you and to me is, why was Terach going to Canaan? And why did he stop? And why did he stop? Yeah. And I have no idea. I mean, so we all have the story of Avram and the idols. I don't know how you got the story, but the story that the way we get it is that Avram, uh, Avram's father was an idol maker and and uh, Avram, through a series of realizations, and there are a variety of stories of this, you know, he thought the sun might be God, and then the moon came out, and the moon banished the sun. He said, oh, maybe the moon's God, and the sun came back up again, and then the clouds came out. He said, oh, the clouds are God. And finally he said, none of these things are God. Something's got to be bigger than that, and he figured there must be one kind of bigger God. But anyway, so ultimately he got tired of the concept of idolatry and his father's idol store, which you also have not find anywhere in the Bible. Right, so, so this rabbinic 
tale comes from, in part, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, where it says, Joshua says to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants, which could be, in part, our answer to the question of why did they stop? You know, why did Abraham continue? Why didn't they all go to Canaan in the first place into Canaan? And maybe this is part of the Bible's answer of, well, that guy was worshiping other gods and not worshiping the one true God of which Abram would be called. And we don't actually, in Christianity, we don't think a lot about this passage or study a lot about it. We don't have any of the knowledge of the rabbinic tale of Abram, the idol smasher. But um, really? I no, really. Huh. I only know about it because I've read the rabbinic midrash and tale on it based upon this passage in Joshua. This is all the information we have about Abraham here. And the one, the story of the version that I liked the most was that um, Abram's father says, hey, I got to go to the marketplace, you know, keep watch over the shop with all of the idols. And um, Abram, knowing that none of these are gods, which is what idol really is, is like no god. This is not a god. This is not a god. Depends how you spell it. If it's I-D-L-E, they're all idol. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And so when his father comes back from the marketplace, all the idols in the shop have been smashed except for one that's holding a club, right? And Abram and his father's upset. And Abram, he knows Abram has smashed these. And he says, why did you destroy like our whole marketplace and all these things? And he's like, I didn't do it. That guy did it. He's like, what do you mean that guy did it? And he's, of course, he couldn't have done it. And Abram's like, ah, so you admit these are not gods, right? right? You know that this god does not have that this little piece of wood or stone does not have this capacity to destroy these others. And it's similar when we get to the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel will call the idols gelulim, right, which is dung balls, <laughs> and and talks about how you, you're not just believing in not gods, you're believing in things that have been manufactured of wood and stone, and it's essentially the equivalent of believing, you know, uh, in dung. And and the thing about <laughs> dung balls, Gilulim, is that Gilil means to roll. To roll, yeah. And like Galilee. Galilee yes. means the rolling hills. And and I was walking uphill once in Jerusalem, <laughs> and there was a guy walking his goat in front of me. And all, <laughs> of, a, <laughs> all of a sudden, the goat lets go. Right. And all these little Gilulim go rolling down, and I'm doing his tap dance, so I don't step on them. <laughs> <laughs> they go rolling by. Right. So that was when I found out the reality of Gila The Lee. reality of that they do indeed roll. <laughs> they do right. indeed roll. Right. Yeah, so I love that story about Abram, the idol smasher, but it's not something I heard um, within my Christian experience. I That's only like heard it. That's like total Sunday school for us. I know. And so when I uh, finally, when I became Bar Mitzvah, my parents gave me a copy of the Torah. And um, not a sacred scroll, but a book. A new translation had just come out. And I started reading it. I wanted to get to the story of Abram and the idols. And I was reading and reading and reading and reading. And I got all ready to the Exodus. I'm going, wait, wait, wait. Where, they, where, <laughs> where is, is it? it? I knew it wouldn't be an Exodus. Because <laughs> that bar was dead Torah. already. <laughs> yep. And that's when I went to my rabbi. And he said, no, 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 no. That's in the Midrash. That's in the stories we tell about the Bible. So yeah. that, was when, that was how I found out that not everything that we think is in the Bible is in the Bible. Because it was Bible to me. Right, it That's, had been taught to you uh, in Sunday in Bible school. class. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, and 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 one of the things we should say is that most of what we think is in the Bible ain't there, folks, because what we see in the Bible is what we were taught about the Bible, or what right. we see through our own perspectives, and it may not be there. It may not. Yeah, we don't we don't have that same 
extra biblical text in Christianity. So we don't have those same stories pulled, but I think we have verses that people will say like a stitch in time saves nine or birds of a feather flock together. And you're like, that's not in the Bible. None of that's in the Bible. There's a whole website about famous movie lines that aren't in the movies. Right. right. (laughs) And when they found the ruby red slippers the other day, they had to show the witch saying, I'm going to get you and your little dog too. And I always thought, and your little dog Toto too. Mm. So we also too. Anyway. Right. A lot of a lot of phrases that are not in the Bible. Right. Ain't necessarily right. so. But it's a fun I like the t- the tale <clears throat> mm-hmm. and I think it's an interesting idea to think about how the father of our faith was Abram who could stand up and say that is not a god, right? And what was it that caused Abram to get up and go and we can talk about this when we get to chapter 12 of Lech but um, all I know is that from Joshua chapter 24 from my biblical text is that Abram grew up in a household where there were idols being worshipped. And the question is, who's worshipping? As you were reading that, I realized we needed an Oxford comma. So Terah, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. So is it Terah and Nahor worshipped other gods? Mm -hmm. Or is it Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor? Worshipped other guys. Right, and there's no comma in the there's ancient no biblical Hebrew. No, there's no. But you can tell by the, the plurality but, yeah. um, of, of, the, of the verb. But, but uh, so the question is, did Abram grow up that way? Right. And I think he did. Right. I mean, Which I Which is think, the only thing that makes sense. I mean, yeah. from what we know from extra biblical context of Mesopotamian and Babylonian archaeological history and text, I mean, there were multiple gods that were being worshipped, right? He, he would have had to. And, and so, I mean, I grew up not knowing that I was Jewish. I found that out later. I mean, I was Jewish, but I didn't know that because my parents didn't do anything that was Jewish. And I was the only one left uh, in, the, in the neighborhood on Sunday mornings. Hmm. It was pretty much Jewish Catholic neighborhood. And the Catholics were all in one place and the Jews were all in another place. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was. I thought I was Catholic. Um, and, uh, and so then I found out I was a Jew. And, and, and part of becoming Jewish in mind as well as in body is to figure out what kind of Jew you are. And so whenever you start off in any kind of a congregation, you get that version of what it is. And I grew up in a Reformed Jewish congregation. By the way, it's Reform without an ED. Um, it's just, reform is a verb, has been our mantra. Um, it's constantly reforming. But as I, and I was very much inculcated as a Reformed Jew, and to, and to despise, literally despise or make fun of orthodoxy. And it wasn't until I got into rabbinical school and spent my first year in Jerusalem that I really learned that orthodoxy has logic to it and sense that there are a lot of things that, you know, ultra-orthodoxy I don't um, agree with, but I, I can live very well in, a, in an orthodox context, and did for right. two years. Um, and so I found out that I was more of a non a generic Jew than a Reformed Jew. Um, I'm a, I'm Reform in my mind, but I'm dramatic and ritual oriented in my practice, and so I fit in pretty pretty well. Um, it's uh, it's common to I think both of our faith traditions and practice to for people to sort of create these silos that make ourselves and our practice distinct from that from brothers and sisters, and so. 
I mean, growing up, I could say, well, there's Catholics and there's Protestants, right? There's Catholics and everybody else who protested the ways that the Catholic Church was doing X, Y, and Z in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. Don't go Protestants, right? right? I mean, yeah. that's why we have yeah. America. Um, so <laughs> here we are. And all, all of those things, and we sort of sometimes define ourselves in terms of what we aren't rather than what we are. If we started defining ourselves in terms of what we are, we might find that we have a lot more in common with the persons that we've put in those other boxes. Which is something we've learned and we continue to learn, which makes it so much fun. Right. And people don't understand <laughs> how we really do it. I mean, because I am not a Christian and you are not a Jew. Right. We have great respect for each other and for the religions, but it's just, so why doesn't one of you convert to the other? And the answer is because, you know, we're happy where we are and <laughs> we do things. Right. right. And I think also because, um, you know, first of all, we... We are what we are, not for lack of an examination, right? You have thought and considered about your faith, and you've considered various other options. You grew up in a Christian, in a Catholic Jewish neighborhood, and it's not like you had no idea. And I really, actually, a friend of mine, when I was in rabbinical school, became a Jehovah's Witness. He was a, really? he was a rabbinic student. Wow. And at the same time, I was, I was studying New Testament in my rabbinic school. Right. And I was also studying the history of medieval polemics between Jews and Christians, you know, bad-mouthing each other and arguing about the text. And so this whole thing was going through my head at the time. And then he decides to become a Jehovah's Witness. And then we had conversations like you wouldn't believe. Sure. Boy. And um, so, yes, I have considered it academically right. and personally and right. all kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And even though we don't share the same lens by which we read our text, we find that there's commonality and hope um, that we can learn from one another, right? Right. So anyway, we, uh, we don't know why he was going to Canaan. Let's go back there. <laughs> yes. We have no idea what he, was, what, what, what he thought he might find in Canaan. And, and something, about the, something about the idea of how people hear God speak must have occurred to Abram. That is, there must have been a family conversation. Hmm. about when you, when you ask, how, did, how do people in the Bible hear God? Right. Now, most of the modern movies are different than the Ten Commandments in the 50s and stuff. Because in the 50s, everybody heard God speaking in a deep male voice. Often British. Often British, but just, just a deep male voice because <laughs> God is always he in the Bible. Uh, but, but also, it was an external right. thing. Whereas... The new movies have it be an internal conversation. And it sounds like uh, it's the people are speaking inside of their head. God is speaking inside your head. How does, how does an idea come to you? Is it every idea that we have a revelation from God? Or is it a naturally occurring thought? Or what's the difference between a naturally occurring thought and a revelation? Right. And so I don't know what Terach and his family talked about. But it must have been a profound disappointment to Avram. Absolutely, because then we're going to get to our next beautiful verse in chapter 12. Yeah. Lech lecha, next Lech lecha, time. Next time.